0: This recording is a ministry of Grace Bible Church of Pleasant Hill, California. We want to thank you for listening and invite you to visit us each Lord's Day on our campus located at 40 Cleveland Road, Pleasant Hill, California, or at any time at gbcph.org. Prayer, and that you would cause your word to come alive in our hearts by the power of your spirit. We pray in Christ's name, one last time, together say, Amen. Thank you. You may have a seat. and I invite you, if you have a Bible or if you want to use one of the Bibles there, to open to the book of Acts in chapter 15. That's page 923 on the Black Pew Bibles, the book of Acts. Thank you for all your heartfelt uh, well wishes for our 40th anniversary, Michael. I heard someone said it was our 60th, and... Like somebody's trying to age me out already. I mean, <laughs> yeah, well, great blessing to be away, but I'm glad to be back, back among you. You know, it's been some time since we were in the book of Acts, the middle of May, actually. So, I do want to remind you that the book of Acts, which we call the Acts of the Apostles, is really the Acts of the risen and ascended Christ through his Holy Spirit by the Spirit in the lives of. Of the apostles. And you remember that this is uh, Dr. Luke's account of the spreading word, how how the gospel began to expand, beginning in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and then begin to reach the uttermost parts of. Of the earth from their perspective and last time we were in the book of Acts in chapter 13 and 14 what had taken place is that the Gentile mission had been greatly blessed it had become a huge success and Barnabas and Paul came back to the church that sent them in Syria and Antioch and there they reported the good news the good news was that God had opened wide a door a door to the gospel and the gospel was bearing much fruit. Yes, the ascended Lord Jesus was building His church just as He promised, and Gentiles, that is, non-Jewish people, right, were pouring into this new covenant people, this new people of Jesus. They were being grafted into the new people of God, the people of the Holy Spirit, what we call the body of Christ. And furthermore, much of this was happening apart from any connection to Jewish synagogue worship. This was just happening out there at this point in the streets and so forth. We would say, hallelujah, this is a great uh, awakening that's taking place. However, not all were excited about this development. There There were some Jewish Christians and I want to be clear, not just Jewish people, right? But Jewish Christians. They were believers in Jesus of Nazareth as the promised Jewish Messiah. But they still treasured their Jewish distinctives. They're all. It had been centuries that they'd had these distinctives. And in the past, in their history, any Gentile that ever uh, converted to Judaism or joined them. What they called a proselyte, if he was a male, he was expected to take on the outward sign of circumcision. And if there was a family, they were expected to become Jews culturally as well. That's the way it had always been for centuries as they came into the covenant people. And now that the Jewish Messiah has come, why should it be any different? Some of them were thinking, you see. Why should it be different now Shouldn't these believing Gentiles do the same like Rahab the harlot? I mean, she, she became a part of us, and she, and she also uh, became a Jew culturally, and there was more, of course. And so what began to happen is there were some who were objecting to Paul's gospel, not that it belonged to him, but he was the main preacher at this point, right? They were, they were objecting to Paul's gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, on the merits of Christ alone. And they were saying, you need to also become a Jew to become a Christian. That's what was happening. Now, they were telling Gentile converts, remember Gentiles, uh, for some of you, maybe a newer word, a Gentile would be a non-Jew any of any other ethnicity, any other background, cultural background, Put it put it that way. They were telling Gentile converts that Faith in Jesus was good. (laughs) But that's not enough, you see. To Jesus, you must add the act of circumcision if you were a male. And to circumcision, you have to add the observation or the observance of the law. Uh, The late John Stott put it this way. It was memorable. He said, they must let Moses complete what Jesus had begun. (laughs) That's good way of putting it, in the sense of what was happening in their thinking, you see. In other words, their theology had become Jesus, yes, plus. <laughs> Jesus plus. And so this issue was an issue of highest importance. What was at stake? The way of salvation was at stake. The sufficiency of Christ and his work was at stake. Wasn't it not enough what he accomplished for us? The gospel, in other words, was at stake. At stake, the gospel was in dispute, and so this dispute took place in the church of Antioch uh, because some of these teachers came down there, and and Paul and Barnabas withstood their teaching. And finally, the church at Antioch sent Barnabas and Paul up to Jerusalem to consult there with the apostles and the elders over this issue. Now we today we refer to this as the Jerusalem Council. Technically speaking, it wasn't really a council. Not every church was represented. It was a consultation. And so they sent up Paul and Barnabas to consult with the apostles who were still alive in Jerusalem. Not all were. And also with the elders that were there. And so a meeting was held. A meeting was held to discuss the conditions for Gentile membership in the New Covenant church. And here is the result. What happened? That's what chapter 15 is really about. The gospel of salvation by grace alone was affirmed unanimously. And the unity of the body, Jew and Gentile, was maintained charitably. I'll say that again because both things took place there. Well, sometimes we tend to not remember the second. The gospel of salvation by grace alone was affirmed unanimously and the unity of the body was maintained charitably. Both of these principles emerge here. The first one primarily, but the both are very essential and they're applicable on our time. So what do we learn from Acts 15, 1 through 35? We learn that, well, several things, but well, one of the things I want you to learn, and I think you already know, is that when the gospel is at stake, which it was here, we must be prepared to take a stand. When the gospel's at stake, we, we must be prepared to defend sola gratia, grace alone, sola fide, faith alone, solo Christo, on the merits of Christ alone. That's, that is the heart and soul of the gospel. But we also learn that not every hill is a hill to die on. And that's something that needs to also be emphasized in our time right now. The gospel is a hill to die on, right? Why? Because when you add anything to the gospel, you lose the gospel. And when you lose the gospel, you've lost it all. Right? But you don't lose it all when we talk about other things. non-essentials, And so forth. So, both of these principles emerge here. Let's see them both come out. think a rich account will make our way through. First of all, I want you to see how salvation by grace alone was attacked in verses 1 through 5. So Barnabas and Paul had come back. They were reporting the good news, and chapter 15 begins, But, the party didn't last long. (laughs) But, some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, listen to this, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, that's the polite way of saying they, <laughs> well, you know, I won't go there, right? <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> sorry, I started laughing about it too much. Uh, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles in the elders, notice that, elders at this point, already in the church of Jerusalem, uh, to... to discuss this with them, meet with them about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, brought great joy to all the brothers. In other words, they told people on their way. This was some 250 miles. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church. They had a good reception, and the apostles and the elders. do so you have all the church all the apostles, and at this point there's elders now in the mother church in Jerusalem, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers, notice again, believers. Believers in what? Believers that Jesus was the Messiah. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, So they were Jews who had been part of the Pharisees. And the Pharisees still exist. And Remember the Pharisees, to be a Pharisee is to be a separatist. They were of the strictest separatist sect among the Jews. They rose up and said, listen, it's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So there you have it. Salvation by grace alone was being attacked. Now, when they say in verse 1 that they needed to be circumcised according to the custom of Moses, they're not just talking about a mere habit, right? They're talking about a long-established practice of the Jewish people to circumcise males, right? This reached all the way back to Abraham. This was before Moses, right? Long before Moses, God had set apart His people by the outward sign of Physical circumcision of the males. This came in Genesis 17. They were probably reading Genesis 17. I'm sure the Pharisees knew it very well. And for Abraham, when he was circumcised, it was a sign of faith he already had. Remember that? He had faith. Genesis says that it was credited to him as righteousness because he had believed. And he was circumcised later. Paul makes that point in Romans four. He says, when when was it declared that he was righteous? Right? When was he circumcised? Well it was after. It had already been credited to him as righteousness. But when we come to the Mosaic Covenant, which came later under Moses, whether or not you had faith, it didn't matter at that point. Young males, uh, the boys were born. They were circumcised on the eighth day. The thinking was they may come to faith. We hope they come to faith. The truth was, was, read your old Testament. very few came to faith. Only a remnant came to faith. And so the sign of circumcision takes... Uh, began to function differently. Now, verse 5 clarifies what verse 1, and it shows that it was, again, more than circumcision that was at stake here. Some believers who belonged to the party of Pharisees rose up, said it's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And so they were insisting on more than the outward sign that you belong to the historic people of God, Jews who now believe in Jesus, right? That's who they saw themselves as. But we also expect you to keep the whole law of Moses. Why? Because at that point, this, the circumcision was a sign uh, of, a, of a pledge to keep the whole law. And that's how, Paul, that's how Paul argued. Remember when he wrote Galatians, which remember Galatians was written, we'll say more about this later, but Galatians was written in large measure to combat this very same kind of thinking, right? This very same teaching and Paul says, um, in Galatians 5, 3, uh, he says, every man who accepts circumcision, I testify that every man who accepts, accepts circumcision, that he is ob- obligated to keep the whole law. It's, you see, it, it's a package deal, says Paul. And, and so that's why you, you, can't, you shouldn't do this. So that's what was being asked. This discussion, in other words, What I want to make the point is this. This discussion in Jerusalem that was taking place was not merely about post-conversion behavior. No, no, it was more than that. This was about what constitutes true conversion. You cannot be saved, you see. What constitutes being a genuine, true Christian, one who belongs eternally now to the family of God, More than just your lifestyle, was a post-conversion lifestyle was was at stake. And so they were saying, if you want to be saved to faith in Jesus, you must add the law of Moses. Wow. Well, again, praise God, men like Paul and Barnabas stood up. (laughs) They stood up long before Luther stood in front (laughs) of the emperor to recover the doctrine of what? Sola gratia, grace alone. These men stood there in Jerusalem. First they stood in Antioch, and then they stood in Jerusalem and said, no, that's, that's, you cannot do that. That's not right. Now, uh, you know, it's, there's too many details to go into, and, it's, it's, it, there's, and there's debate, the relationship of Galatians to Ju, Acts 15. It's very likely, I think most likely, that the events of Galatians that Paul recounts and perhaps even the writing of Galatians uh, took place before the events of Jerusalem in Acts 15, because it seems like if Paul was going to say, What you're doing is wrong, and the Jerusalem council, well, excuse me, con- consultation <laughs> had taken place, he would just refer to it, right? He'd say, I'm not the only one saying this. The mother church said this. So it's likely that these events either they overlap, they're the same thing, though it's hard to be exact. Uh, but at least the events took place before, and what did Paul say in Galatians? Well, he said, man, when we were we were we were living in liberty with the Gentiles, and what happened is these these men came down to spy us out, spy out our behavior. <laughs> Let me find that text in two, these false brothers sickly came in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. He says, To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth, watch this, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. You see, what was at stake? Not just post conversion lifestyle, but the gospel was at stake. Doesn't he say in chapter one, if anyone preaches a different gospel, let him be anathema, let him be cursed, and it's no gospel at all if it's not the gospel, right? It's not good news at all. So this, all this to say what? The gospel is, of grace alone was under attack, and this was not anything trivial. There's nothing trivial. You think, you think about Paul's tenor. When you read Paul, when he writes to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians, you know how many problems the Corinthian church had? Tons of problems, right? Come on, you've read Corinthians. All these, all kinds of sin issues. I don't know why people today call themselves the first church of Corinth and Hayward or whatever. It's it, it was a messy place. And yet when Paul writes to them, he, he speaks to them how? Tenderly. He speaks to them as those who have experienced the grace of God. But when he writes to the Galatians, he is livid. Why? Because he's talking about the gospel, you see. What's at stake is not post-conversion behavior. What's at stake is your justification before God, you see. And so Paul's livid. He is livid. They travel these 250 miles. They come up there. When they come there, salvation by grace is affirmed after the debate. Now, let's begin at verse 6 now. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, don't you wish Luke would say, see Appendix A, you know, And and you go there, it's like, wow, that was two weeks. Whoa, I didn't realize he took a swing at him. You know, whatever. Just how long? One hour, two, three, four days? I don't know. But he says, after much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, now here I'm going to tell you that the gospel of salvation by grace alone was defended, and it was defended by three speeches. Peter's was first, and then Paul and Barnabas, very briefly, as Luke records it, and then James, the brother of the Lord. So, It begins right here with the first speech to defend the gospel of grace, and it's Peter. So Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. What's he talking about? The conversion of Cornelius, the Roman centurion. And he made no distinction between us and them. Us and them whom? Us Jews and them Gentiles. Having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? Why are you saying to God, should you really do it this way? Watch out. (laughs) By placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. Well, there you have Peter's first defense. What's he talking about? He's talking about When he went to preach the gospel to Cornelius, he entered into the home of a Gentile. He had to be convinced by God to go. And when when it got done, what happened? Before he even finished preaching the gospel, the Holy Spirit came upon them in the identical way he had come upon the Jews at the beginning so that Peter would see and they would all understand that they they are affirmed and received into the same family on the same basis, you see. And Peter had to see that. He, He had to witness it. Now, what is he, and incidentally, when he says, um, when he says, in the early days, scholars estimate that was about 38 A.D., and this is about 48, so it's about 10 years already has gone by. Sometimes when you read a narrative, you just w- move through it, and you don't really realize how much time's going by. So 10 years ago, the early days, okay? <laughs> in the early days, so 10 years of evangelizing Gentiles has been going on, brothers and sisters. And, 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 and this is finally getting under the craw of some other Jews, you see. And so he says that's what he's talking about. And what do you say? That God chose, God made a choice that the Gentiles, notice this, should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Hearing, believing. Hearing, believing. What would Paul say to the Romans? Faith comes by hearing, you see. And hearing by the word of Christ. So they were saved not by doing, not by circumcision, not by doing anything according to the law, but by hearing the word of the gospel. That's how they were saved, you see. And so he's making that point there very clear. Paul would make the same point. They sound very similar. Paul makes the same point in Galatians chapter 3, verse 2. He says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law, or by hearing with faith. See, when they received the Spirit, was it what, they, because they got circumcised? Uh, because they, they kept the Sabbath? Why did you receive the Holy Spirit? It was because of faith. See, faith in Christ, which we heard read, is the gift of God. So, Peter is stating the same thing that Paul is saying. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing of the word of Christ. And this is no oversight on God's part. It's not like God, God made a mistake. He emphasizes there. He says, God who knows the heart. God knew whom he had given faith to. God knew who was born again. God knew. He was, he's not a fool. God who knows the heart bore witness to them. He attested to the fact that they belong in the family having, by giving them the Holy Spirit. He made no distinction between Jews and Gentiles at that point. That was 10 years ago. And then he says, having cleansed their hearts, notice this, having cleansed their hearts, having cleansed their hearts, how? By faith. By faith. By faith alone. Suddenly our hearts are cleansed in in the presence of God. Because of his work, because of his grace. Grace alone. And so he goes on. He says, Verse 10, here's his conclusion. Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? And that's an astonishing admission from Peter. What does he admit? He admits that the law of Moses, seen in, in, in this incorrect way of, of being an instrument by which we try and relate to God, it's a yoke we cannot bear. <laughs> right. Is the law good? Yes, Paul says that. Remember Romans 7, right? The law is good. Why? It's truth, right? But seen as a means to try and make yourself right before God, it is what? A yoke. I think he's using it negatively here. It's a burden, he says, we could never bear. Look at our history. Read our Old Testament. We couldn't do it. And neither can you. And neither could they. Neither can I, you see. And so he speaks negatively of the law in that sense. And Paul again echoes the same sort of language. Who taught who? I don't know. They probably talked about it. Uh, In Galatians 5.1, Paul says, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And so he uses the word yoke again uh, in that same sort of negative capacity. What is a yoke? You know those we don't use yokes all the time. You know, I don't call anybody and say, hey, can you bring your yoke over? And when was the last time you said that? Right, so, right, farmers and you, you people with that kind of background. We're not talking about a yoke in, in, in other mechanics, but, you know, you can picture the, the, the two oval shapes there going on the, the back of the neck of two large animals that needed to be about the same size so they could pull equally. And the yoke would keep these animals in line, keep them in place, and, and so p- both Peter and Paul say the law seen in the wrong light, the way you guys are trying to use it, saying you must, you must keep it all to be saved. The law had other good purposes, right? Prophetically appointed to Christ, etc. But the law seen the way you're talking about it, that's a yoke we could never bear. In fact, it was a yoke wrongly they tried to bear, Paul would say in Romans, right? Not knowing of the righteousness that comes from faith, they tried to make their own righteousness. And so this is what Peter says, this yoke of slavery, this yoke, this bondage, it's a burden. And then he says in verse 11, here it is. There's, I think, the center of the whole account. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus. That's it. That's it. Just as they will, you see. And you notice how he emphasizes the unity, the equality. How? Because he doesn't say it the other way. He doesn't say we've come to believe that they these gentiles will be saved the same way we. He says we believe we will be saved the same way they will. Right? Just like the gentiles so us, right? And you notice the future tense there of salvation, will be saved. That gets brought up once in a while and I, I emphasize to you again that salvation has three tenses in the Bible. Because salvation is bigger than having my sins forgiven. It also involves the resurrection. It also involves not being condemned at the judgment, you see. We, I was saved when I was converted by the grace of God. I'm being saved in the sense of my sin, the pollution of my sin is, 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 is getting washed out. I will be saved on the last day from the wrath of God, you see. So that's all he's talking about. But it comes the same way. That's his point. Membership in the people of God, not based on ethnicity. You don't need to become a, a Jew or be a Jew or outward signs, nor upon your moral efforts, your capacity to keep the law. It's not based on anything like that. It's based on what? The grace of God alone through faith in Christ alone and His merit. And that's it. So what he was saying, in essence, what the, what the um, consultation came to a conclusion was this. Gentiles can be saved as Gentiles. You don't need to become a Jew to be saved. In other words, Jesus has bought a people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. And when he calls us out of darkness and into light, we all can keep what? We keep our cultural heritage. We don't need to all look alike. We don't need all to dress alike. We don't all need to have the same sort of schedules, read the same books, sing the same songs. Have None of that, you see. Because salvation is what? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And it's, it's glorious to look out here in this co- congregation, in the Bay Area, within these two hours, different ethnicities, backgrounds here. Gentiles saved as Gentiles, right? Don't need to become a Jew. to become a a Christian. So I think what it is they didn't understand is what Paul says in Galatians 6.15. Look, that's a verse worth looking at because I want you to see the word he uses there. When Paul comes to a conclusion, and he says, look, there's some people boasting in the fact they're circumcised. You want to boast? Boast on the cross of Christ. That's the only thing you can boast in. Verse 15, for neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision... (laughs) but a new creation. That's it. Not whether you have an outward sign or you don't have the outward sign, what's the outward sign of, of the new covenant? We just did it last week, you all. I wasn't here. Baptism. So it doesn't matter whether you have the outward sign. What matters is what? That you are a new creation. That you were made new by the new birth. Born from above, you see. Everyone I, every of you out there that's a Christian, those of you where you may be found, bless the Lord, huh? It doesn't matter how you, what you have achieved. You've never merited the love of God. He has poured His love upon you, and He's made you a new creation, you see. And the law is not imposed upon you and me as an outward yoke, by which we try to appease God. But now the law's written on your heart, you see. Because you're a new creation and you have an inclination by the Holy Spirit. He mediates the presence of Christ in your heart, in your life. That's it. Huh? Is it? Amen to that, right? That's glorious news, you see. That's true of you. So the second speech is Barnabas and Paul. I'll be brief because Luke was brief. He didn't want to f- emphasize it. He says, all the assembly fell silent. Verse 12, they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related with signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So they recalled those signs and wonders we've read through all these earlier chapters, right? Miracles that God did to affirm the gospel. But Luke doesn't emphasize that as he records this because of what he goes on to record James' speech. So let's go to James, the third, and I'll show you how I think they relate. Um. After they finished speaking, James replied, verse 13, Brothers, listen to me. Who is this James? This is not James the apostle. He is dead. He was beheaded earlier. This is James, the brother of the Lord Jesus. right? Also the James who wrote what we call the epistle of James. Okay? This is James, the brother of the Lord. And so James uh, begins to, to speak, and he says, Simeon has related, Simeon is Peter, Peter has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his own name or for his name. Boy, that's that's an important phrase throughout the Old Testament. Who was that all the time? Israel, right? But he's taken a people for his name from all the Gentiles, right? And with this, the words of the prophets agree. Stop there, right? Stop there for a moment. What is James' argument here? How does he support this? This is a man, remember, who wrote the epistle that we call the epistle of James. And it appears that some people said they were sent by James. And James will later say, we did not send him. (laughs) And they were pitting James' teaching because that was already written. The epistle of James, we believe, came very early. Or he himself would have appealed to this. And they were pitting, uh, pitting some of the things that James has said against Paul. You know, Paul's gospel. Didn't James say faith without works is? I wonder who he's going to say in this meeting now, you see. Let's get James riled up. Let's get James to stand up there. What's James going to say? And what James says, Peter's right. <laughs> but not because what Barnabas and Paul said about all their experiences. Because this is what the prophets have always said, you see. In other words, the final appeal was to what? Scripture. The prophets have always spoken about this. Now, I, I make this slight point here, not a major point, because historically the Roman Catholic Church has utilized this chapter as a means of putting the church on the same level of authority as the Scriptures, because you have what they do call the first uh, Catholic Church council, the entire council, and, and, the, and the Scriptures, etc. But you notice here, what is the final source of authority? The Scripture. It's what the prophets that have said that makes this all important. And so he quotes from one prophet, and by quoting one prophet, in essence, he's saying Amos reflects what all the prophets have said because he already used the plural. The prophets have said this. And he quotes the prophet Amos, who was speaking uh, speaking judgment against the northern kingdom, and also speaking of a time of restoration to come, and he seems to weave in a couple of other references, allusions to some of the other prophets. In other words, it's a loose quotation. And he says, with this the words of the prophets agree, plural, and he uses Amos just as is written, Amos 9, after this I will return, this is the Lord speaking, after, uh, after judgment, I will return, I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord I'll stop there for a moment I take this to be a reference to what with New Testament eyes and for what has been preached uh, he what he's talking about is the resurrection of Jesus the son of David from the dead you say there's a time when the promises of God, of the seed of David to be the great king, the Messiah, and so forth to come seemed like it was ruined, it was crushed. And Amos was speaking about it at that time. But I will rebuild the tent of David. And that took place in the incarnation of the, of the great son of David who came and his resurrection from the dead and his ascension. You see, So I take that to be uh, fulfilled in that way. And What's the purpose of this? That the remnant, that is, those whom God has placed His affection upon, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. People from every nation, tribe, and tongue who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from of old. Um, if you are to to look at other passages you'll find that the promise of the of the, all the nations coming under the tent of david and the blessing that god had promised is found all over the prophets like he says but he only quotes Amos directly he alludes to others there's Zephaniah there's Zechariah especially Isaiah and so forth uh, and so he says here's the he says Peter's right and here's why because the prophets have always spoken about this. And you wonder, did his brother Jesus ever talk to him about this? And remember, he didn't believe till it was all, all wrapped up, all his, that his son had died and was crucified and resurrected. Did he have chats with him? Maybe they had that brotherly spat, you know, that sibling spat of, yeah, you're full of it. <laughs> and now he says, you know what, the, the prophets have always taught this. And so that's the third defense. It's the final defense. Um, And so, sola gratia, grace alone, salvation by grace alone, is unanimously accepted and defended. He says, therefore, my judgment, verse 19, is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Stop right there. So he says, my judgment is this. Remember, he he had a leading role in the church of Jerusalem at this time. He says, my judgment concurs with whose? With Peter's and concurs with Paul and Barnabas. Those representing the church at Antioch. Uh, that we should not, we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. So you notice how he describes having, having to take the outward sign of the old covenant, which was what? Circumcision. And having to keep the whole law of Moses. He calls that being troubled. You bet. You bet. It's bad news to hear you need to keep the law of Moses in order to be in order to be saved. He says, we can't do that to these people. Peter, Paul, Barnabas, and James all are in agreement. What James did is he provided the theological, biblical basis for Peter's argument and for Paul and Barnabas's testimony, their witness. He gave the theological, scriptural basis for salvation by grace alone, applying to the Gentiles being written in the Old Testament. And so then it's applied right there. Verse 19, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. But then comes verse 20. But we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Time out. (laughs) Wait a minute, what just happened to salvation by grace alone? (laughs) Is James, James contradicting himself? He's saying, I believe, like Peter says, that we're saved by grace alone through faith in Christ alone. But at the end of the day, I want to I put four rules in here. Let me grab four. Boom, two, three, four out of the 600 or so laws. You know. no, that's not what's happening. That's not what's happening here. I want you to see, especially, that he, he describes them as those who turn to God in verse 19. Gentiles who turn to God. That's going to be important here in a few minutes. Why? Because to turn to God, you must do what? You must have turned from something. Right? Uh, Faith and repentance is what takes place when we come to faith and we come to to, to, to be saved in Christ Jesus. Right? To be justified. Repentance is not a work, not things you achieve, but as there's a turning from and a turning to. And so he describes these Gentiles as those who have turned to God. And Paul, when he would write to the church at Thessalonica, after he had been there and he had preached the gospel to them, he, mentioned, he describes them as those who had turned as well, but he has both sides of the turning, okay? So in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse and. 8 and 9, he says, not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So we need to say anything. What he's saying is, everywhere we go, by the time we get there, everyone's already talking about you Thessalonican Christians. I get there and they already have your story. I can't even share this story. They stole my thunder. And, he said, and what are they saying? They themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. In other words, they, they talk about how, what we experienced when we came to Thessalonica and how, watch this, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. In other words, you are a Gentile in the first century. You were a pagan worshiper. You worshipped idols. And when you became a Christian, you turned from idols and you turned to worship the living God. This was done by grace, right? This was not something you merited. This was not a work you did or calculated. It's just, it's just natural, you know, you turn away from the idols. And so there's a lot of debate about well, these four things that, uh, that, that are mentioned in verse 20 and then mentioned later that, that James draws upon, you know because some of the statements are found in the law, that's found in Leviticus and so forth, so they try and find, well, what's he doing? Is he picking like this commandment, this commandment, that commandment? What is going on? But I, I think it's most likely, and I agree with those scholars who say, it's most likely that what James is talking about is simply this, that these are four things that were associated with pagan idolatry, pagan worship, the worship of idols in temples, okay? And so that's what he's saying to them. He's saying, he's not talking about works in order to be saved. That's not his point. Uh, This is not about earning salvation. This is an appeal to abstain from those things that characterize their former lives as idol worshipers. They needed to turn from that because some of the things that went on in these idol worship in temples was absolutely, absolutely uh, despicable to the Jews. And what James is concerned about is to make sure that he can protect the unity of this new creation, this new body of Christ, Jew and Gentile coming together. I think he had more than just fellowship in mind, but you know, it was essential for them and their worship of Christ as well not just to get along with Jews, but you do need to turn from idols. I like the way Dennis Johnson puts it. Dennis Johnson put it this way memorably in his commentary. He says, Gentiles need not become Jews, but they cannot remain pagans. <laughs> okay? Gentiles need not become Jews, but they need not remain pagans. You know, you need to turn from that. And those sorts of things took place there in... Uh, Pagan sacrificial rituals, uh, things polluted by idols. He's probably talking about meat of the animals that had been sacrificed on an altar in the temple. Sexual immorality. Uh, Many of these temples included sexual activity with prostitutes, which was part of pagan worship. And from what has been strangled, there was the belief that uh, historically, we we know that some priests, they, they taught, that you, they would strangle some of these creatures to death and try to capture the essence of their life by capturing their last breath. That was a strange pagan sort of activity. And lastly, from blood, some of the priests would taste the blood of these animals, okay? Now, you all would say, well, who'd want to do any of that? <laughs> well, that, this was their lifestyle. This was their lifestyle coming up to this point, you know? And so uh, Paul would have to write about this later, 1 Corinthians 8 all the way through 11, man. And then, and then in Romans 14, now it's more nuanced. There's more things going on there. I won't go there. But Paul did have to address this, you know. As essence, he was saying, look, you can't, you, you can't just keep going to temple uh, and, and then come in to share the Lord's Supper, okay? You don't need to become Jews, but you can't stay pagans. That's in part. Now... Obviously, there's other forms of sexual morality that wasn't associated at all with temple worship of pagan idols, right? And we need to avoid that altogether, and that would be clear. It should be clear to them, but it's clear because it's written on the heart, and, that, and the apostles would continue to, to unfold that doctrine. So the gospel is the hill to die on, right? In the essentials, unity. In the non-essentials, Liberty. Okay, let's walk this through a little bit. Were they at liberty as Gentile Christians to eat any meat they wanted? Technically, yes. Paul says that. In fact, when Paul writes Romans 14, he says, you know what? We know that idols aren't anything, really. A a stone is a stone. And so if somebody sacrificed meat to a stone, it's okay to eat it. Because it's nothing. Okay? In other words, the meat didn't warp in some weird, strange, molecular way. He says that's the strong Christian. The weak Christian, he says, the weaker brother's the one who thinks he can't eat it. But be careful how you use your liberty, you who think you can eat that meat. Don't use it in a way that to, to, to stumble your brother, you see. So when we think of these four things, were they free to eat meat sacrificed idol? Yeah. Should they be barbecuing it in the temple right after a sacrifice? It's like, come on, man. Your brothers hear about this. What's going to happen? The Jews are going to think, that I don't want to see this guy. It's sitting in your fridge. No one needs to know. <laughs> Take it out later and grill it. You, you understand, this is nuanced. You follow what I'm saying? It's nuanced. But right at this point, what James was seeking was to protect the unity of this new creation, which is the new covenant church of Jew and Gentile. And he says, you are saved by grace alone. But here's four things you're going to have to avoid to get along with all of us, all of us together, because in every city you go, and Moses is being read in the synagogue. And people are hearing about this stuff. And so don't do it. And we know it was not a yoke. We know it was not a yoke because the last part, how the grace alone was received and all make this very brief they write a letter right they write a letter and they send it you know how the story goes and in the letter they basically restate the same things and verse 22 as he says let's write the letter they, they were all in agreement you see in other words everyone in jerusalem including whom paul and barnabas did not see these four things including who peter They did not see these four restrictions as a violation of the gospel of salvation by grace alone because they all agreed. It wasn't a burden. It made sense. You don't need to become Jews, but you can't stay pagans. And then in verse 31, when the letter arrives, it says that they were rejoicing. Verse 31, when they read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. In other words, it made sense to them. It made sense, and they said, that totally makes sense. So, yeah, we'll, we'll be careful, and we'll avoid that. Now, later, Paul has to write more about this subject because, again, it gets very nuanced, and people start asking more subtle, clever questions. right? And so the New Testament continues to unfold it. Um, at that point, you know, it was more important to also be charitable and ask the, the Gentiles to be charitable towards the Jews as they try to begin to interact and fellowship with them. Then lastly, that that salvation by grace alone was received. I just mentioned there that they received it with joy. Uh, Salvation by grace alone was affirmed unanimously and the unity of the body was maintained charitably. That's the account right there. This is the turning point in the book of Acts, right in the middle. Almost exactly the middle in the amount of words. And from this point on, Peter in Jerusalem fades, and Paul and the journey towards Rome and the ends of the earth becomes the focus, you see. And this was a key turning point for that to become possible. There'll be synagogues all over the Roman Empire, and when Paul leads these Gentiles to faith in Christ, he tells them also about these, what was decided in Jerusalem. Well, you can read elsewhere that he mentions that to other churches, not just the church at Antioch. In fact, he says that in chapter 16. You know. I think, you know, it's easy today to look back at these Jewish Christians at first, especially those Pharisees, and say, how can they think of such a thing? After coming to faith in Christ to say, we want to put people under the law, you know, but there's many, many ways that even we can subtly begin to say, if not out loud, but begin to think what? Jesus plus to be like us, to be like us. And we get stretched, and we ought to be stretched to remain true to salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, on the merits of Christ alone. It's easy to slide in our thinking from grace, forgetting where we came from, forgetting where God found us, and you begin to start thinking about others. Now, look at that family. What a mess. We look pretty good, huh. You forget. You stand, you stand by grace alone you were you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. we read when God found you, right It's very easy beloved don't don't ju- don't think you're're you're, you're free of that and and that happens at a church at our stage of development because now we're becoming that transgenerational church we this congregation twenty six years and, and 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 some of you still from the previous congregation here and you start to get different generations of Christians. And, and you know what? When, when we hand the baton, they're not going to do things the same way. And what are you going to think? What are you going to think? What are you going to say about them? They need to look like us? Don't you think it's strange? I think it's strange. I've, I've been to churches in L.A. I, when I was down there in seminary, you go, to, you go to church and you walk in, the first thing you notice is, Oh, my gosh, everyone's dressed the same. Even the little guy has a white shirt with a tie. He's like two feet tall. (laughs) They all sound the same. They all look the same. Where did that pressure come from? A yoke. A yoke. A yoke. You know, grace is messy. And some people don't like grace simply because it's messy. And what's not messy? Rules. Yeah, rules. That's pretty easy, right? It's easy to have a list of rules. You say, this is what you need to believe to be a part of our church. You need to be a Christian. You're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, on the merits of Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, on the authority of Scripture alone. But we'd like you to... Then comes the list. <laughs> it, gets, it gets messy, but that's... That's life, and that's where liberty, and, and we need to use wisdom, and we need to be careful. and it would be helpful just to talk now about liberty and how to use your liberty so people don't abuse it and, and harm other Christians, you know. Uh, there is no adding to the work of Jesus. It's anathema to God. You are saying the sufferings of his son isn't enough for you and you want people other people to justify themselves to be in your fellowship by adding the rules that you have that's anathema to god you cannot earn a righteousness by which you are right before god only the righteousness that comes by faith which is the gift of god so let me say to you all to you today you here and those listening there's only one, if you're not a Christian, there's only one thing separating you from salvation. It's not circumcision, men. It's not the law. It's faith. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. That's why it's good news, right? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you shall be saved. Take the yoke off of yourself and off of others. The only yoke you and I can withstand is the yoke of Christ. Why? Because he says it's light. It's light and easy. Why is it light and easy? Because it's not a yoke of merit to earn the love of God. It's light and easy because he already took the full penalty of all your sin, the wrath of God. And there's nothing but mercy and love left for you. His yoke is easy. It's light. That's the only only yoke you and I can come under and live. Are you under that yoke? I hope so. Let's pray. I hope so. Lord, thank you for your word and.